Contact lenses are really important to the independent doctor. And one of the things that is really tough for them is that the patient will order one or two boxes and then leave. And so this has been a challenge for many years and one that Marlowe meets head on. Marlowe meets the consumer where they want to be met. They're on their phones, they can order the way they want to order. It's finally solving a problem that's been part of independent optometry for many years. That prescription would have left and nothing would have been purchased at the practice, but now through Marlowe, because it's so easy, because the patient is being met where they want to be met, and because they're able to use Marlowe to reorder, they're doing so and the practices love it. Marlowe is an innovative digital platform, and I think that's what really draws the attention of the doctor. It is a great way for a practice to be able to capture uh, the patient purchasing from them. But Marlowe does it in a way that's very convenient, very simple, and we know everybody wants great digital platforms, and Marlowe brings that to the practice in a great way. Marlowe modernizes independent optometry. Hi, welcome to another episode of I Own a Business, where we focus on helping practice owners grow the practice of their dreams. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Vargo, and today we have, I believe, our first return guest. So the demand was high, the audiences spoke, and they said, we want more Nathan Hayes. So here, here he is today. Nathan is, if you're not familiar, IDOC's Director of Financial Services. So hello, sir. It's good to be back. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um Always love spending time with you. So a lot of times what I'll do with these is I go back after we record them and I listen to them. And from that, I I decide on a title because sometimes the direction goes different than, than maybe I thought it was going to. But I, I'm going all in on the title. We're going to lead with the title. We're going with what is my practice worth? I think there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty out there when it comes to this issue. Emotions tend to play a role. I I see a lot of people saying things like, I think my practice should be worth this much, or I feel like my practice should be worth this much. So so today we're just going to break down the process and try to get to the core of what's my practice worth. And let me lead with this, maybe help describe the key factors initially that, that practice owners should consider when trying to determine the value of their practice. Yeah. And it, I think the the most important factor is who's buying it. Um, and, and I think this is a little trite, but your practice is worth what someone else will pay for it. And, and, you know, you can talk to me or any other number of experts around like what you might expect your practice to command in the open market, but until you actually market it and find a, a pool of buyers or one, you don't really know what you can get for it. So, um, and I'll give some, you know, valuation theory it is is just that and there's there's good technical reasons why you, you can sort of think through what a practice should command what what someone can afford to pay for it um but i think for me the most important thing to say is it really depends on who's buying it and i'll give you just quickly you know three examples so let's take a million dollar practice and let's just say three potential buyers are someone who's going to run it as a satellite someone who's going to come in and, and and work it and vdod there and then a private equity group and and there's just very different factors that play into um, what those people will pay. And and the, the bottom line is that the the fundamental driver value is what someone's expected future return. 
their expected future return. So the past obviously matters as because past can be prologue, but a buyer is going to look at the practice and ask like, okay, if I own this, what are my expectations? Um, and again, for different people, it's going to look different. If I'm coming into work there and I can take over the doctor salary and the profits, you know, that that's more income to me. If I'm going to run it as a satellite though, I've got to pay for the note to buy it and to put an associate there and still have something left over for me. So what I'm either willing to pay or even whether I want the practice matters and then private equity, uh, which is cooling off at the moment, we can talk about sort of what their, their valuations are looking like. Um, you know, they, they have a thesis around, you know, we're going to pay this amount for the practice. And then when we put together 300, 400, 500 locations, um, that group of practice is going to be worth more than the sum of its parts. Um, Cause you spread out risks and, and, you know, some of them, uh, my auditor comes to mind, absolutely got a much bigger return than what they spent uh, to acquire the practices. So that's maybe a first pass is just, you know, um, who the buyer is, what's their future. Really, you got two two aspects of it. What do I expect to get out of it? And then what, what multiplier do I put on that? So usually you might think like, what's the multiple of EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax depreciation, amortization. And that multiplier is is the inverse of an expected return. So if you demand a 25% return on a practice, then your multiplier is four, one divided by 25%. And that's that's kind of the theory there. I'll pause. You want to... Yeah. Do you have a sense? So uh, let's get into the formal valuation because as I, I've heard you say this many times is that it's a, you know, any business is worth what somebody is willing to pay. And there's yep. a lot of truth to that, but do you have a sense for how many of, of optometry practices or maybe within the IDOC community that have actually sold their practice? How many of them actually seek out a formal appraisal? And then let, help me answer this question. If I were to come to you and say, I'm, I'm selling a practice, do I need a formal appraisal? What would your answer be? Uh, answer that's no. Um, you you just need a price that you can agree to with the buyer. Um, appraisals and, and just understand what they're built for. When you talk about fair market value appraisals, the, the rules around that, the guidance and how you do it, is really oriented towards situations where you need to set a value for a, an asset without actually finding a buyer. So think gift tax, estate tax, divorce would be the main situations for that. And the rules are really meant to say, you can't just price this low so no one owes taxes on, on the transfer. Um, so just understand that you, you really in the, you're assuming that you know hypothetical buyer and seller, neither under any compulsion to buy or sell, both with reasonable knowledge of the facts. And if you take an actual optometry practice selling, you have a, a real buyer and a real seller, one of whom or both may be under some compulsion to buy or sell, like in a partnership, there's some compulsion to buy. Uh, if you're sick, you may be compelled to sell. Uh, and that, if you're in a hurry, that's going to affect what what price you can uh, ask or charge, uh, or may it may. Um, and then, you know, is everyone in reasonable knowledge of the facts of the business? I mean, it, sometimes it's really hard to get the data out of a practice. The financials aren't clean. The record keeping isn't good. So, um, you know, a lot of the things that go into an appraisal. Um, may not actually hold um, in the actual transaction side. Um, and, and really with an appraisal, just candidly, most appraisers can tell you about where it's going to land before they do any math um, and what you're paying for is a report. And there's some there's some value there. I mean, many people report like, I got this appraisal and based on how this professional looked at my business, I understood some things that I could be working on. And, and fair enough. Um, but But just understand that, that, you know, you don't need it. And and to sell, you don't need it because the bank 
is going to do their own assessment of the value of the business. Um, it, that's what underwriting is for. And so the bank's not going to ask for an appraisal because they're going to do their own assessment of, do they think this is a good practice to buy or sell? And so you're really duplicating their work. They're not going to ask for an appraisal. And I've seen them argue with appraisals before based on their own assessments. So um, short answer is no, it can be helpful. Um, there are cases in partnerships where your agreement may call for it. Um, and, and, you know, fair, fair enough on that. Cause that's a, that's a special circumstance. So everything that you just mentioned points to there being a subjective nature to appraisals, but to what degree? And I think a lot of people feel a sense of uh, confidence in getting that appraisal because they feel like they're getting uh, that the, they're, let's just say from a buyer standpoint that they're not overpaying. So I, I think they like to get that number, but at how, how much, how are, if we take on one hand, something that's a perfect science and at the other end of the spectrum, something that's completely arbitrary, where does an actual appraisal comes in? Because it sounds like there is an element of subjectivity to it. Um, th there is because the multiplier is, um, is really a subjective assessment of risk um, that, you know, to have, um, to have a third party step in and assess what a buyer's risk profile should be doesn't really work. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, works with a practice a, a year or two ago um, or a potential owner, he's looking at buying a practice and the situation was it was a partnership where the the, the younger partner was really the managing partner driving the business. Um, and there's an older partner that just was kind of there. Younger partner has a sudden heart attack and dies. And um, they, they get an appraisal, but the appraisal was dated for the December 31 before this partner died. And they put something like a million dollar value on it. But the issue was that that valuation wasn't applicable to the new reality of we're short a provider and the provider that's there can't really manage the business. So our revenues are down 40, 50% over when that appraisal was done. And and yet the the sellers, um, the deceased sellers uh, widow and, and the, the remaining partner were locked in on that price uh, that just didn't fit the the circumstances. So you have to be aware of that. Like sometimes the circumstances, the assumptions the appraisal is making don't fit. Another example would be like, if we're going to put two practices together um, to think that you're going to praise each one independently as if they're in their own space doesn't really fit because the, the forward looking expectations of the revenue revenues may be pretty predictable, but the profits are going to look different because you're shedding one location's cost. And so you just need to think a little more deeply about that in terms of like, yeah, you can get an appraisal to determine equity, but that doesn't really fit the reality of what's going to be the future. Um, so sometimes it's just a matter of, is the appraisal really thinking about what the forward-looking reality is going to be if it's not going to be the past? And then past that, when you look at the multiplier, you have what's called a build-up method where you know, all these things are investments made against substitute goods. So your, your fundamental substitute good is, if I put it in cash, um, I'm going to get, you know, one or two or 3% interest on it um, from the Federal Reserve. And that's guaranteed. Like I know I'm going to get that. So that's very low risk. And then you just layer, you know, or I could buy stocks. Those are somewhat higher risk, but certainly not as risky as a small, closely held company. Um, and then you have the competitive situation. And there's, if you actually think about how the sausage gets made, there's a lot of subjective judgments and you can, you can build scorecards around it. But at the end of the day, you still have a human being assessing what they think the risk of this asset is. Um, so it, it, it can be pretty subjective. And even if you go through like what people will, will say for like, well, Hey, what's the, 
um, what's the return on this? What's the buildup? And you just have to ask, like, how do you know that? You know, how do you know what the return on assets should be? How do you know what goodwill should be worth? I mean, you have these formulas in place, but why why is that the case? What's what's undergirding that? So a lo longish answer, but yes, there's there's a lot of subjectivity in how these things are done. How much has PE changed the landscape? Let's let's go in that direction because that's a very that's a hot topic. And yeah. how much has that changed? I think there's a consensus out there that's probably accurate that PE will pay more than the the typical sort of street value of a yeah. practice. But also, I, I'm interested in your take, and this is probably a separate podcast in itself. So, but what are the pros and cons for for owners considering PE? What are the common pros and cons of going in that in that direction? Yeah, I, I, the biggest change that PE has made is um, EBITDA as a financial metric was never discussed in iCare until PE started rolling up practices, and and this is private equity, um, and uh, using multiples of EBITDA as their their main form, which is how th those kind of groups will think about it. Um, I, I think that yes, that they they pay more because their expectations are. You know, and the returns are different, and, and just maybe in concrete numbers, and the, one one of these is a little rough. But my eye doctor was paying in their heyday before they sold to um, Goldman Sachs between seven and nine times earnings for practices. So that's earnings EBITDA. You can use them interchangeably. Um, they back of the envelope when they sold to Goldman, they got certainly better than fifteen times earnings. So you pay nine times earnings, you get you sell for fifteen times earnings. That's a good flip on on their investment, and so their expectations, and that's way more than you would typically see on private practices. Um, so it's it's changed in that sense, and and there are definitely cases where owners um, really have struggled to separate like that private equity can offer me this, my associate can be offering me something different, but it's not the same, and I get stuck on this number. Life's about trade-offs, and so really with private equity, you know, you're getting more money. Um, it's not all guaranteed, so you may not get the full amount. Like the guaranteed amount is probably a lot closer to what fair market value is, and then the rest is earnouts based on, or or based on either you staying, or um, you know delayed payments, based on performance. So there's there's some strings attached, and then the other piece is you've got to stay for usually two to three years, maybe up to five, and watch these groups potentially turn your practice that was a full scope high medical practice into much more of a, a value play retail. Um, practice depending on their model. So um, you have to stay and potentially watch your business get changed. And that can be hard for, for a lot of doctors to swallow. But for, for others, if you were behind on your savings and, and things were really high, um, a lot of owners got bailed out of not saving enough for retirement by you know, what PE was offering. So, and, and those valuations have come down. So broad strokes, um, if you look at, if you want to use multiples of, of EBITDA, which is really um, an EBITDA, by the way, it's sort of the operating income of your practice, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. You do need to price in a fair market rate for the owner's compensation, which is probably the biggest adjustment that people need to make. But there's also addbacks like your car, um, things that uh, the future buyer may not keep on the P&L. Um, private practices tend to trade for between three and I'm saying tend to very carefully here, between three and five times EBITDA. Um, again, I mentioned in its heyday, up until all this inflation kicked off and interest rates went up, private equity is paying between seven and nine times earnings. That's probably more like five to seven uh, times earnings. So it's still more than you would expect from a private practice, but it's not it's not the big jump where you see practices selling for you know two and a half times their revenues, which is unheard of up until now. Um, 
so that's that's probably the biggest changes they've made on, on the valuation. And it's again, you just have multiple layers of of where practices trade for, depending on who the buyer is. I think what we've heard from people who reach out to us who aren't necessarily at a point where they need to or they're ready to sell, but they've been approached by PE and they want feedback on that, it usually comes down to control. The majority mm -hmm. of the time, I think what we hear is, well, I, I received a really good offer. It's tempting, but I'm just not ready to give up control. Yeah. And there's really three things that when you think about just exit planning, um, we want to think about is the practice ready to transfer to somebody else? And that's, that's, we can get into that maybe a little bit in terms of what you can do to enhance your practices, either curb appeal or value. Um, but the other two are like, Hey, what do I need to, to, to fund my, my long-term wealth needs? So is there a gap uh, between what I have saved up now, and what I'm going to need to, to, for retirement uh, or my long-term, you know, economic provision? Um, and if, that, if they meet that one, then the second, third question is just, am I personally ready to let go? Um, and there's a lot of owners, you know, some, some are burned out and like, yeah, I'll take the money and, and move on. Um, most, um, if they're not that close, are, are going to hang on and continue running the practice. But that's a very personal decision and it's going to vary doctor to doctor. Let's continue down the road of something you mentioned as far as the the value. I, if you're at a point where you're starting to consider that exit plan, whether it, let's just say it's maybe five years or, or perhaps even longer, what are the things that a, a practice owner should be focusing on to continue to add to the value of the practice? You mentioned curb appeal and, and value. So could you expand on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, fundamentally working on sustainable profitability is the best thing you can do. So scale matters, um, income matters. So, you know, being more robust, growing past a single doctor practice to being a multi-doctor practice is one of probably one of the best things you can do both for like your lifestyle, but also just de-risking the practice if something happened to you. Um, make the, the less, this will sound counterintuitive, but the less your practice depends on you to run it, the more appealing it's going to be to a private buyer. Now, private equity, they, they sort of assume we can run it. But I've seen cases where an owner who just didn't know what to do with himself spent three days in management a week and an associate actually passed on buying the practice because she she thought like, I can't do that much work. And the reality is it probably needed six hours a week of his time, not 24. Um, and he just enjoyed it. So getting the stuff off of your your plate, and for owners, this really means having a plan for replacing your patient care time and, and production and um, transferable management. So do you have other managers, and especially if you have a spouse, like actually getting that spouse out of the management seat over time so that when you sell and you're not there anymore, you're not pulling out both you know a majority of the, the, the patient care and all the, the staff leadership Um you get, get, think about those things. So and in reality, like these things are good for you as an owner. It's good for the business to learn to stand on its own two feet. Um, but it also is going to make it a lot more appealing to um, anybody. And, and really, we see this a lot. I and mean, you and I have talked about it. The owner that does manage to get themselves out of the lane and out of like the grind actually ends up helping the practice grow faster because they can put their energy in higher value activities and see the big picture. I think it's also aligned with with the trends that we're seeing and hearing. And I, I want to be careful not to stereotype here, but what yeah. one of the things we hear is that the the younger generation of ODs, and fairly enough, they're more interested in work life balance. We're hearing from you know a, a segment of of our membership saying they can't find as many ODs interested in owning. 
And I think to your point where if you can demonstrate that I have a business entity that's not as dependent on me, and what, what a lot of times what we see with those particular owners is they do have more work-life balance because they were able to replace themselves to some degree with associates, with leadership, and they tend to have more work-life balance that I think it's fair to say that that would be more attractive to perhaps a, a younger generation of ODs. you think that's accurate? I think so. I think so. And even if you end up going like the private equity route, um, you know, your contract for how much you have to work for them is going to be dependent on how much you were working for the business before. So you know, you're going to have more flexibility to to negotiate less time or even, you know, in some cases where you're a truly remote owner, um, just sell it and walk away. Most owners don't go that far, though. In line with what we talked about, and a admittedly grossly oversimplified example would be, you know, a lot of times when you when you're valuing an asset as an investment, you know, I, I've used the again overly simplified example of which way is the arrow pointing. A lot of times when you look yeah. at investing in something, if the arrow is pointing up, then a seller can command more money, and if the arrow is pointing down, then it's it, the the leverage probably shifts in favor of the buyer. But to get into more concrete, um aspects of, of value and practice. We're going to go right into to your wheelhouse here. And I'll do a quick plug for bench and books and benchmarks, one of the services at IDOC that that you lead. Can we get into the the role of financial statements and historical performance in in the valuation process and, and what perhaps what specific metrics should practice owners be paying attention to? Yeah, I think um so a couple of things within the financial statements uh, to make them as clear as possible. And this is you know a lot of what we do is you know, Books and Benchmarks has two big ideas for practices. One, it's a really easy to read layout for the financial statements, specifically the profit and loss statement. Um, and and the biggest thing that that uh, a buyer might struggle with is, and I had this conversation this morning actually, if you don't split out owner salary, associate salaries, and your non-OD staff, it, it's really hard for a, a potential buyer to see like what's the picture going to be because. The, the most expensive employees are the ODs. And so if you're inefficient with the ODs and they're all lumped into payroll, it's it's just hard to see what's there. Or if you're lean on ODs, um, also hard to see. Because you're it, if I'm advising the buyer, at least, we're going to be looking at the PL and asking, okay, this is what it says today for what it's been in the past. What's it going to look like if we're in charge? Like, I don't need two doctors to generate $1.1 million in revenue. I might need a doctor and some help. Or I might do it all myself, and I can. You know, plenty of doctors can do that in four days of patient care. Great. And so we're shedding all this doctor cost. Um, staff looks looks uh, too expensive. The owner's pay is not on the salary. Um, if you own your building, make sure you have a fair market rent number in there. Um, so you want your financial statements to paint as clear a picture of what someone can expect it to be under their leadership as possible. Um, balance sheets a little less important on this stuff, but but do matter. Um, and and it's it's really as simple as like if if something's off in the numbers like the question I'm going to ask is how hard is it going to be to change that? So again, case study from this morning was a practice uh, about a million million one in revenue. Cost of goods was 37% of revenues, which is high. Staff costs were 29% of revenues, which is also high. And that 29% was like five and a half people, so they were averaging like back of the envelope $54,000 a person. And you just start seeing these things like okay, I can't change payroll easily. What's going with the cost of goods? Is there something wrong with the pricing model? Um, you know, they, they weren't on electronic records. So it's just like you start layering up these things that a buyer is going to have to fix. And it's either going to mean like, I'm not going to pay as much because my risk is higher that this is going to blow up or I'm just not going to buy it at all. Um, and it really, we were like, either either you determine you can fix this and maybe you buy it or you just pass um, because it's it's 
you know, you, you can't make those changes. So, um, and the other thing I'll note is if you have a super profitable practice, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, cause there's two ways you can be profitable. You could actually just be really efficient with your staff and your space and, and your technology and, and, and maybe you're running at the red line and, and we're going to say like, well, that's great, but we're still going to have to invest more to, to get the next level of growth. It also can be that you just haven't spent a dime keeping your business up and you know, your, your dispensary hasn't been refreshed since 1985 and your equipment's old and the, the building's tired. And so, yeah, you're making a ton of money, but if I come in there and I want to make this thing sustainable for the next 30 years, I'm going to have to, on top of the purchase price, put hundreds of thousands in, in the infrastructure equipment and, 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 and new stuff. So just be aware that bragging about your profit margins to me is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, obviously it needs to be somewhere, but um, you know, probably north of 25% to the doctors, say north of 10, 15% uh, to the sort of net after a fair market pay for the doctors. But at some point, more profit isn't a good thing. Um, not always. Like if you're a rural practice that just has low cost, fine, you know, great. But also that comes with less growth potential. So again, buyers are gonna make their own assessments, but there's a lot that kind of goes into that. You're focused on High profit. Let's talk about low profit for a second. We've heard of offices just practices just closing their door. They can't find buyers. Is there a is there a number that you would look at? And maybe it's not specific. Yeah. There's probably not a specific number where you would say to somebody buying, it's it you're better off just opening cold than you are buying that practice. Yeah. If you so if anyone's read an appraisal, you'll know there's there's a couple of methods people use. You can use an asset based method, just so it says like which is more for holding companies or a company that's like if you're heavy manufacturing, most of the value of the business is in the equipment. Um, so that's one methodology. It doesn't really apply to optometry practice. There's a, a market transaction method that just it's like pulling comps on houses that just says, Hey, practices tend to sell for this and based on how your practice looks, we think you slot here. And again, even if, if you've done that with houses, you know how subjective it can be. Like Okay, yeah, this house around the corner that has the same square footage sold for X, but my house has all updated kitchens or maybe not updated kitchens. It, it, so you're you're doing your best to make apples to apples um, judgments and, and analogies, but it's not it's not a perfect methodology. Um, we tend to say like a price to the gross revenues is kind of that methodology. Um, and then you get, we've been talking a lot about an income based method where you say like, okay, what's the income stream and what's the multiplier on that? Um, there's there's a fourth way to do things that's called a um, a debt service model. Um, and it's not a, a really a way to appraise it, but it just understand if you're thinking as a seller about your business, um, it's the acid test for any transaction, which basically says, okay, I expect to earn $250,000 as the owner of this business. And to buy it, my payments to the bank are going to be, let's just say a hundred thousand a year, eight, 8,300 a month. Um, is that 150 left over an appropriate return both to meet my lifestyle needs and to um, you know, justify the risks and headaches of owning this practice as a, as a baseline? And then, of course, I have my expectations on growth potentially. Um, so, yeah, there's an absolute sort of acid test. I mean, the practice I was looking at this morning is throwing off like $170,000 to the doctors, asking a half million. It's like, you know, so you're going to buy this for, let's say it's 65000 a year in debt service, and it's only throwing off 160,000 to the doctor. So now we're at a hundred thousand. We still got to pay a doctor with that. Like there's nothing left over for the buyer if they're not working there. 
And, and so, yeah, there's, there's some minimums there, but it depends on the circumstance. I mean, one thing I think people forget about when you have that small office is um, you may not be a very attractive purchase to someone to run it as a standalone location. But if you're, you know, that $400,000, $300,000 office and you have someone nearby that can absorb your patient base, I mean, to me, you're a very attractive purchase to buy the practice out, move the patients in the office and, and shutter your location um, in the sense that now we're taking away your rent, we're taking away some of your equipment costs, we may not keep all your staff, like your your patients are more profitable in another office than they are in yours. So there's... um. That's kind of a long-winded answer, but but there's there's ways to approach this depending on who you are as a practice owner. It's not that you're not sellable; it just changes who who buys you. And you might go to ophthalmology, and they may want you just as a referral source for surgery, and their their calculations look different in terms of your value to them. So again, I just stress like who's buying you and what they expect to get out of your business is way more important than what some appraiser like me says in a vacuum, of like with with some pretty rigid assumptions around who's buying the practice. For that low revenue practice that says, but Nathan, you could come in and buy my practice and do all these wonderful things, add technology, start seeing more medical, and, and you could blow this thing up. That's why it's worth X amount more than what the what the market would typically say. I, I was in that situation once looking at a practice, and that's what I was hearing from the owner. And it was about a it was a low revenue practice, but he kept telling me about all the things that that I could do, and that's why it was worth paying above market. Yeah. And I was actually working with somebody else who said, he said, that's his problem, not yours. He goes, it's it. He can't expect you to pay for 30 years of not investing and growing the practice. Where do we yeah. draw the line on that? Because I know there is something to be said. If you think you can come in and gobble up this $400,000 practice, and I can really do that versus trying to be sold by an overzealous owner, trying to convince you to do the things that that he or she didn't do along. How do, how do you consolidate that as a, as a potential buyer? Um, I, I think it depends on who you are and your risk tolerance. So- um, I'm I'm broadly of the view that when doctors bet on themselves, they tend to be right. So we don't often see someone who's willing to take the risk of buying a practice, take it over and and kill it. It's it's happened, but it's not common. So to the extent a buyer wants to take the risk, I think it's fine. I think as if you're in the seller's seat, just be aware that your peers are just as conservative as you are and risk averse. And so the chance that you're going to find some young doctor who's never done it before, who's just willing to pay you extra for the potential in the business, highly unlikely they're going to do that. Um, some will, and, and they may they may be fine. I mean, when I'm working with the buy side, and I I tend to be a little more charitable on valuations than maybe some others, um, partly because I believe in the buyer, buyer's ability to grow it. Partly because I just think there's there's value there, um, and I I think what you really want to get is control of the business. So if you want the asset within reason, you should pay what it takes to get it. If you want the practice, because most owners do great when they take over, um, it's important to say that. Definitely seen situations where someone who has um, either bought or, or or started multiple offices looks at a weak office and says like yeah i know i can i can make this better and so i'll pay extra if you've done it before i, I i'm more comfortable with you saying that but that's that's the the buyer saying look i know it's overpriced but if i take over this four hundred thousand dollar office it's a million two in three years and they'll pay it because they, and they've done it before and they know they're going to do it again they know how to do it and it's a, it's a smart bet on themselves because they, but again that's their subjective risk assessment driving what they're willing to pay to get control. And they're still going to negotiate with you. And they may not pay that much, but they may be more willing to pay more. I wouldn't bank on that if you're the seller though. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's worth highlighting strategy here, right? It's, it's yeah. the difference between a conversation I had a long, 
you know, quite a, it was a while back with somebody who said, I, I thought I would be farther along at this point, but it was a very passive approach yeah. toward growing the practice. And, and he was growing very slowly over the years versus yeah. somebody who is more intentional with the growth of the practice. So again, looking at the value, I think it bears repeating that if, if you're considering the value of a practice is, do I have a strategy to grow that practice? And, and what are my goals around that? Yeah, and and again, I I think um, I'm I'm a big fan of this discussions that you know other financial professionals I have when we look at the universe of optometrists in your peers, Steve. Um, you know, we all think that they should go buy the bigger practices, but um, it's a real challenge for sellers that like a lot of people don't want to take on two million dollars in debt to buy a three and a half million dollar practice, where yes, it's more expensive, but the thing so sellers and and prospective owners listening the money's there right now um you can absolutely get financing to buy practices it's that's that is not everyone seems to think that financing is a limiting factor here or student loan debt neither of those things are going to stop you from getting a loan to buy a practice at a reasonable price um but the appetite of young owners to to or prospective owners to take on that much debt it, it just feels like a lot um i finally talk to some doctors who are looking at like a five and a half million dollar optical and you just don't hear this very often like yeah we know it's going to cost three and a half million and we're totally willing to do it because it's going to cash flow from day one the reason you pay more for larger practices and the reason you should be willing to do it is that instead of having to fix stuff it's a turnkey operation where you should step in and just have the cash flow from day one the systems are there the patient base is built the staff is trained and that's that's what you're buying you're buying all that infrastructure the location equipment staff brand um history and and it's worth something because it's less risky because it's been doing it for a while right? whereas that weaker practice that may be in decline like it is more risk it's hard to turn those things around it's hard to train patients to pay co-pays and, and pay premium pricing it's hard to train staff to ask for co-pays uh, and you know believe it or not we see it frankly that practices haven't been charging co-pays don't don't price it appropriately and so you buy this weak office and you end up losing all the staff and all the patients and you basically got a, a cold start and it may be a little more affordable than that, but it's still like, that's a lot of stress to turn over your team and to turn over the patients. Yeah, It's a great so, point because that's what I'll typically hear on when somebody buys it, which, you know, you refer to as a, a weaker practice is a lot of times it's it's a practice that's been in existence for 20, 25 or years or more. And they got a good deal on it because it is a, a weaker practice, a lower revenue producing practice, but you'll... 99 times out of 100, you're going to hear about all the changes they had to make and how challenging that was to implement those changes. And these are difficult changes. These are these yeah. are culture changes. These are staffing changes. These are patient perception changes. Yeah. And that buyer probably thought it was less risky to spend less on a practice, when in reality, it's a much higher risk. I mean, the reason it's less expensive is it's a higher risk business. It's not a guaranteed thing that it's going to, mm -hmm. you're going to step in there and, and enjoy the same success going forward. So- where does goodwill factor in all this? Because that's a word that tends to come up in valuations and goodwill being things like reputation and established relationships with patients. And it's, you know, we've talked about some things that are very concrete and tangible. This one is not. This one is very intangible. Yeah, let's let's define goodwill. Um, and, and I'll just say as a note, you'll see in some appraisals that they'll, they'll quantify what goodwill is. That to me is completely backwards. Um, when you buy an asset, and it, so there's two ways you can buy a practice. You can either buy the stock or you can buy it as an asset. Most 
pure transactions are going to be asset transactions for a lot of good reasons. Um, and when you do that, you have to allocate the purchase price for the IRS across multiple categories. There's seven that technically are considered three applied optometry. So you're looking at um, equipment, inventory, and goodwill. And basically, when you think about what goodwill is, goodwill is um, if you take the purchase price, every part of the purchase price that isn't explained by the physical assets and inventory is goodwill. So everything above the value of the equipment, the value of the, the fixtures and furniture, the value of the inventory is goodwill. For most practices, that's going to be most of the purchase price. Um, and, you know, it, it, it really matters mostly for tax purposes. Um, sellers are going to want most as much of the purchase price as possible to be goodwill because they can um, that's taxed at, at capital gains versus ordinary income on some of the other assets. Buyers want more to be to the fixed assets because they can depreciate those in their taxes. Um, and, and the bottom line is both parties have to report the same numbers to the IRS. Um, but you know, most of the practice value should be goodwill. Like practices aren't capital intensive things to run. Most of the value is in the patient base and, and the brand. Um, but that's that's a maybe a fuller explanation. So basically, whatever part of the price isn't, you know, we have a hundred thousand dollars in equipment and fifty thousand inventory, for instance, everything above that is going to be goodwill for tax purposes. Thanks, Nathan. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for helping us understand uh, what is my practice worth. So there's a lot to consider uh, it, as we get into valuing a practice. It's it's not a perfect science. Yeah. I think something just a, a good point to leave people with that are, I think at any point of ownership, it's wise to look at the endpoint. What does my exit plan look like? And and working to build the kind of practice that someone wants to buy. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do yep. that over the years, you'll have something at the end that is worth a lot of value to somebody, but being very strategic and intentional with it as you, as you go along. And the other piece I'll stress, um, it's well said, is the earlier you can get on your long-term financial planning, the better off you're going to be. Um, and, and most owners rightly sort of think of their practice. Like when my planning, I'm going to plan to save enough that it doesn't matter what my practice is worth. I think that's very smart. Your practice does have value at the end of the day. But it's 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 hard to sell, and there are definitely practices that don't find buyers. So, planning ahead, um, making sure the practice is going to be desirable, all these things matter. And and even if you do it all right, I mean, we've seen some rural practices that still took seven eight years to find a buyer just because no one wanted to live in the town. Um, and young doctors listening, you should want those rural practices. Less competition, more profitable. Um, Netflix goes everywhere. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, just last thoughts from me, maybe um, valuation is not a science. And so, I mean, there's, there's the most important thing I can say is there's some broad strokes. Like if you're planning for value, yeah, I think three to five times your, your EBITDA is a probably a pretty good planning number, but at the end of the day, it, it's, that's all academic until you find someone who's willing to buy it and finding the buyers, the hard part um, within reason, once you have an interested party, it, my view is you should be able to get to a price that works. Nathan, can we can we close up with one thing? Because we this does get into the financial aspect, so that's really not what this was about. But can you just mention books and benchmarks and and what you do from that front? Also, we you mentioned financial planning. We were also work um, closely with some really good financial planners. So if if you yeah, want, so we'll have to put in a mention for them connection. as well. Um, uh, yeah, so books and benchmarks is a new uh, service um, that is a bookkeeping service for optometry practices. Um, big impetus for me was wanting to, as a, a consultant who focuses on benchmarks, actually having real-time data. So um, wanted a, a fresher set of financial ratios for practices and, and operating 
um, metrics and and really without controlling the bookkeeping, didn't really trust ODs, no offense, guys, uh, to, to have accurate numbers. And we've really seen that whether it was the practice trying to do the books or even the CPAs, um, doing books with an eye to the balance sheet and an eye to actually making it make sense for the business, um, we're meaningfully improving the financial statements, but also giving owners some context for what's happening. So uh, very proud of the service. We've got about 135 practices in right now. Um, this is late September, 2023, depending on when you listen to this, uh, just hire three more bookkeepers. So excited about that. And again, we're meaningfully improving people's financial statements and, and saving their offices time as well. Um, and, and the CPA's time as well. Um, and on the uh, planning side, like if, if you are looking for help, we can certainly make some referrals. I don't know that I'll name drop here. Um, uh, we'll have a couple of CFPs, um, at IDOT connection, which I'll endorse for February next year. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the ones we work with are great. I, I think that just getting into planning with whomever you see fit is, is great as well. Um, can't recommend that as a process is, um, enough and, and understand that a good CFP might have more ideas for even lowering your tax bill than your CPA does. So having that full team, um, bookkeeping CPA and a CFP can really help you make great financial decisions that are better than just having one piece of that tripod. Well, thanks again. I, this is very helpful and insightful, really, for anyone at any stage of of owning their practice. So, whether you're at a at that exit stage or whether you're just starting out, keeping a, an eye on continuing, like I said, continuing to strategize and and being intentional with with building the kind of practice that that somebody someday is going to be willing and interested in 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 paying a lot for. So, so yeah. thanks again, Nathan. I will close out here. Appreciate your time. Thank you. So. Thanks to Nathan and thanks for everyone for listening. And if you'd like more information about IDOC and how we work with ODs to help them grow their practice, you can find out more at IDOC, that's IDOC.net. And thanks for listening.